o'clock on a Monday, you know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring special guest star Mr. Jonathan Weiss. Now, everything you've ever wanted to ask a music supervisor. And welcome to the big show, John. How are you, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. <laughs> like I didn't just see him down the hall three minutes That's ago. Right. Hey. That's how they do it on the talk show. That's right. Yeah. Except we saw each other. We don't have a green room with shrimp cocktail and champagne. It's all good. We got water. That's good. <laughs> That's right. We have two bottles of yes, water. Yes, too. Um, so I don't know how many of you guys. By the way, oh, let me get the chat room open. Uh, welcome back to the first show of the new year. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited to have Jonathan here. Um, to like do the inaugural show for the new year. I wanted to do something with a little, you know, pizzazz. Sure. And uh, he did such a good job at the road rally this year, last November, I mean. Uh, uh, John and David McIntosh, a video editor that uh, has worked on a lot of shows with Jonathan, uh, did a thing together where we got to see both sides of the fence. And I've got to say, even I was like, Man, I'm learning stuff here, so that was cool, because I think I know everything. <laughs> Just ask me. Um, so I want to read uh, Jonathan's bio off at the top of the show, because I'm sure that uh, plenty of people will be watching the, um, the archive of this later, and they may not have seen the email that went out. So uh, where we go? Okay, Jonathan's a music supervisor and music producer for film and TV. He was music supervisor for over 130 episodes of the MTV series The Real World Road Rules Challenge, as well as for two seasons of E Entertainment, the E Entertainment series I Am Kate. Uh, Jonathan also supervised music for over 60 episodes of Keeping Up with the Kardashians on E, uh, Motor City Masters on True TV, and Love Games for the Oxygen Channel. His other music supervision credits uh, include the Weinstein Company feature film documentary and PBS's American Masters Salinger. Interscope presents the next episode for Showtime. Uh, the education of Max Bickford, and this is how old we are, how long we've <laughs> known each other, I guess would be the better. I've known you since you were working on that show. Oh, yeah. Um, UC Undercover for NBC, Celebrity Undercover for MTV, and the Warner Brothers picture theatrical release of The Big Tease. He's also worked at A&R for Capitol Records and Universal Music Publishing, as well as gracing us with his presence whenever we can get him between shows or mm -hmm. seasons. And uh, so I'm excited to have you here because uh, we've known each other forever and we don't get to hang out that much. But whenever I do, it's like, that guy's smart. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> somebody, uh, Bojo says, off to a great start, typos and all. I, I never make any typos, <laughs> ever. Um, and I do have some taxi member questions uh, that <laughs> came in uh, via Facebook. Um, and, and frankly, this is always disappointing to me that we don't get that many on Facebook. And then people type them in the chat room and they go flying off the screen because they're coming in so rapidly. But I want to hit uh, Jonathan up with some questions that I actually wrote out before the show. Some of these I did uh, when they did the panel at the road rally. So I'll be covering the same ground to some extent, but not entirely. Oh, I also want to say before we start the show. Um, I'm going to make these guys promise not to send you a thousand emails <laughs> after right. the show. Uh, it, it's always embarrassing and a little scary for me and, and 
for the guests on the show, frankly, uh, last time we had a, a gentleman on who's a music library owner that I think you know well. By the time he got back to his house somewhere in the valley, mm -hmm. he'd already gotten like, you know, just a ton of emails from people. Hey, check out my music. So just to clear up a common misconception, you don't just hang out on the Internet and listen to music all day long that people email you, right? That's correct. Um, yeah, I mean, it's mostly from publishers that I know or um, labels or third party licensors who I would get material from. And uh, yes, they do send out their email blast. They're a trusted source. I've worked with them before. And many times, if I did need something at a beginning of a season, I would send out an email blast to all those uh, entities and they would send me stuff. So that's correct. I mean, yeah, the occasional uh, cold email I might open, but uh, normally, like you said, it's from, you know, the trusted folks that I've worked with over the years. I, I, I've known Jonathan for easily 10 years, maybe even closer to 15 years now, and, and frankly, I would only hit him up once or twice a year, what are you looking for, you mm -hmm. know, because I know how crazy busy he is, and generally speaking, um, especially on reality, I'm assuming that you guys have certain libraries that you work with that you probably do blanket license deals, mm -hmm. and you have drives with thousands of pieces of instrumental music. Yeah, not only that, but a lot of the networks already have these blanket uh, agreements in place. Like with E or MTV, they probably have, you know, five, six libraries that we can choose from that are, you know, they would pay these libraries a yearly fee. And then the music supervisors who work on those shows can use them gratis uh, throughout the year. So, yeah, we have like a huge database of music that we can use uh, just for incidental uses. And then for the lyric cues, that's sort of when we relied more on the third party licensors or independent bands that happen to send us stuff that we have relationships with. So when, let's talk about uh, something I was going to ask you much later in the show, but you just brought up something that jogged my memory about this. It used to be a few years ago, um, we were getting inundated with requests for songs. Um, lot of singer-songwriter type stuff. Um, all the supervisors uh, wanted mostly dramatic, episodic dramatic stuff where they wanted um, songs, usually relationship ending songs or introspective, what am I going to do with my life, wringing my hands kind of songs. And they wanted them for the uh, montages at the end of the show. Uh, and then all of a sudden that stuff just kind of dried up to, instead of being 90% of the request became 10% of the request. And we had this explosion of requests for instrumental music. Um, is is it just me that's saying that, or is that like everywhere? Um, I think it depends on the show. I mean, something like the Kardashians, we wouldn't use any sort. In fact, E really didn't like any lyric cues for that show, unless it was you know Kanye West, which he sort of <laughs> forced us to use. I can't um, imagine. <laughs> um, but uh, for some of the MTV stuff, uh, that is a lot more relationship-based, so we would use quite a bit of singer-songwriter stuff, quite a bit, meaning maybe two or three per show. For the challenge, it was more action-oriented, although we would have, obviously, relationships going on in the house because they all lived together and they had relationships. Something like the real world probably was more relationship-based and they did have more need for that. But I would say in general, yes, for reality TV, it is mostly 
uh, instrumental background music to be used under dialogue because it's not scored. You know, anything on these network shows like Grey's Anatomy, for example, is all scored. And then the music supervisor would have maybe three spots for uh, a lyric cue. And, you know, she can pick whoever that music, he or she can pick from hundreds of songs that they get. And they may not uh, have a need to go out to all their publishers and say, we need a singer songwriter cue. So that's maybe why you're not seeing as many requests come in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you've got a teenager at home, right? I do. A, a yeah. son or a daughter? Uh, well, or... the teenager's a daughter. Okay. My son's only eight. When uh, my uh, one of our younger daughters uh, is a big Grey's Anatomy fan. <laughs> I, I really don't know much about her TV mm -hmm. watching habits other than she watches a lot on her, her laptop and she does binge watching. She came down to the kitchen one night crying. I mean, seriously crying. He's dead. They killed him. <laughs> I don't even know who the character is. I, I think it was... Um, oh, actually, I do. Doctor McDreamy. The, oh, the, right. They yeah. killed him off. So that was a very traumatic night at the Lasco residence. Wow. Um, and I'm sure they used probably a couple of songs for exactly. that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's hit up the uh, the drive with the death and dying songs. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, need to find where I am in my notes. Oh yeah. So please don't email Jonathan. I'm mm -hmm. going to reiterate that again for those of you who are watching the archives because you know what. Word gets around and people aren't going to want to come on the show if they fear that they're going to be inundated with emails, especially from people who become like stalkers. It's like, why aren't you answering my email? So uh, tell us about the role. Uh, I'm going to hit you up mostly for reality stuff because I think that's where most of our members get their deals and placements and uh, you've got a lot of expertise there. So go through the entire life cycle. I'm going to shut up and just let you roll on this for a while. The life cycle of a reality TV show from the very beginning where you might uh, meet with a, uh, the exec producer before the show even starts shooting to this show, you know, this week's show being done and starting on that week, next week's show. Right. So uh, I guess it depends if the show has been on for many seasons or not. Um, for example, you know, the Kardashians, once that train got rolling, it was basically the same formula almost every episode where we kind of knew what we were going to use. A lot of the hip hop and electronic pop stuff would be used for the transitions and some of the incidental stuff uh, in the background for the sillier moments would be more sort of comedy oriented. And, uh, you know, there was there's tension on the show, um, so we would use tension cues. But if it's a new show, it does take a little while to uh, get everybody on board to uh, find out what the direction is going to be. Like for I Am Kate, I think it was decided that uh, it was going to be a little more serious, seriously mm -hmm. toned. So I think we went a little too serious the first episode and we pulled that back because one of our producers said, you know, we're not making a PBS show. It's a, <laughs> it's a serious subject, but it's on E and people have to be entertained. So let's, you know, not be so seriously toned. Were so. you guys afraid in the beginning of, of being comedic and entertaining for fear that there'd be backlash? Yeah, I think so. Sensitive and subject, that, obviously. That's right. And, you know, we, we wanted to respect that. And um, 
For that one, I did hire a composer uh, for that show just because we wanted to, to have a, a different sound. So he sort of set the tone for that. And we decided also to not make it wall-to-wall -wall music. It was not going to be uh, every, you know, cue after cue after cue. We were going to let the dialogue, let it breathe a little bit, not have any music for a lot of times because it was, you know, like you said, a, a sensitive serious subject matter and uh you know that was always the push and pull on a lot of our shows is it doesn't have to be wall to wall we don't have to tell the audience what they should be thinking by placing attention cue we already know it's attention filled scene by the dialogue there the people at home are smart so it was always sort of a push and pull between the editors and the producers uh whether we wanted to you know, have it so music-laden and wall-to-wall -wall music. How many people would be in that meeting when that decision gets made as to the kind of amount of music and the tone of the color palette, musical color palette, is it like three people or ten people? No, it, it, it wasn't just the music department. I think for a new show like that, it was probably a dozen people because wow. it, was, it was everybody. It was the editors, the supervising producers, uh, the location folks that would be or the segment producers that would be on on site and we weren't just discussing music music would be like a five minute exercise within the whole production meeting and who makes the final call after everybody who well, should give input does. yeah it's the exact producer at, at at the production company i think he was the one who came back and said you know i love what you guys did but again you know it, I'll just I'll say it again. We're not making a, a PBS documentary, and we weren't. And I think he was right. And I think we finally found the right balance between having a, having some fun moments because you know Caitlin is a pretty positive person, and she had a lot of positive motivating people around her. And there were some uplifting moments uh, with the family, so it, it didn't need to be all you know down. This this is so serious. So um, we we were able to. Strike, strike a good balance. Breaking new ground, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, so let's use that show as an example and go to like the beginning of season two. So now you've got your feet planted, your direction set, um, and you're um, in front of episode one. What is the process for episode one? I think just to keep it fresh, to, to bring in new cues. Uh, for that show, it's different. And this is sort of getting into the nuts and bolts, which, which I is know. no, I, okay. I, I want to because I think that's helpful right. for people to, for one thing, to understand the speed at which which mm -hmm. things move, um, so they can understand that you're not hanging out in an office with your feet up and a bong in your hands, that's right. you know, listen, listening to music. Going, oh, I love that. Let's put it in the show. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was the '80s. But, yeah. um, no, I think every show is different, like I said. And for the MTV shows, I would be picking, handpicking every single cue uh, for the show, um, even the incidental cues. Whereas on the shows for E, we would give them all pre-cleared cues and put them in different uh, genre categories like electronic pop, upbeat, describing the, the tone of, of the cues, uh, tension cues, um, comedic cues, um, and they would all go in bulk to the editor's bins. Mm. And we would, 
rely on them to make the right choices and usually they would these, these guys are great editors um, they're also music editors because they don't have a music editor they they, they are right. they're the picture editors they're the music editors so you know it goes through a six-week process from the time that the editors get um, sort of a cut-down version of the show to each episode is like a six-week process probably yeah about wow. five five weeks in, in post and, and then it goes to uh, the, the final layback where um, the music supervisor I would I would be there and sometimes you would hear a music edit that wasn't right and we would go back you know everybody has notes like yeah. swell it up here or 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 do this so it's it's different in that we we would give them um, a whole new set of cues for season two in addition to the composed cues just to make it fresh. And I think all the networks don't want to hear you repeating themselves. In other words, you know, for, for MTV especially, like if they heard a tension cue that was used before, oh, we already heard that. So. And, and would they know? Would they pick that up if it was something that you used seven episodes ago? They might they, recognize they, it? Whether, whether they did or not, if they say it in an email, then you have to change it. Right. There's kind yes, of no you argument. did hear it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, wow. So yeah, I think it's just season two would be to keep it fresh, bring in a whole new group of cues, not change, you know, not not reinvent the wheel, but just uh, bring in fresh music for the second season. And so you've given all these cues. How, how many roughly? I mean, are we talking five hundred or five thousand ish? Um, oh no, I would say in the hundreds. Yeah, probably. Um, like I said, for that show, excuse me, not not wall to wall was only two seasons, excuse me, whereas uh, the Kardashians, I don't know what that's on, season 11 or 12, I think we dumped a lot of the first few um, seasons of music. In other words, it was taken out just even for space-wise. And again, it was six years ago. Yeah, you know, we dating to, the show. That's, yeah. that's correct. So Music has moved on, so is the... the style of the show everything's evolved that's right but for a show like that or uh the, the, the duck dynasty for example has been on i did, we didn't do that show but for four or five seasons i'm sure they have thousands of cues in their library um that they would use over and over again and maybe some of the networks or producers don't care that it has to be refreshed but but we were very cognizant of that and try to keep it fresh so you as the supervisor had to listen to everything to pick the the finalists if you will to put them on the drive put those on the drive to hand off to the editors and then the editor sits down and cuts picture and they do they instinctively know just because of your working relationship that for this kind of transition jonathan weiss mm -hmm. would usually pick that i mean is there a certain amount of mind meld going on or do you have to give them specific instructions no not at all i mean these guys are so skilled and they've been doing it so long that they they just know i don't know how they know but they do know most of them don't need that help. There's some editors that need a little hand holding. Not many though. Like 10% would say, I have a scene and I just can't figure it out because it's a little serious, but there's a little comedy involved. Can you find me? And that's what we're there for. I remember so. David McIntosh actually complimented you very mm -hmm. nicely on stage. He said that, uh, you know, even though he felt like pretty adept at doing this stuff and you complimented saying that he was so pro at it, he said, but there's sometimes you just hit the wall and I knew that if I picked up the phone and called Weiss, he'd have the answer for me. So 
that's kind of cool, you know. It's it's better than uh, having to handhold, I guess, through every scene and every episode. That's right. Torture. And I think a lot of the production companies are like that. Even the ones um, that we spoke about this a lot on that panel, where like the Housewives of Orange County, where you know I could A B the uh, quality of the music and the time that it took, I think, to to find it um, was just markedly different from the stuff that I worked on. Um, doesn't mean it's a bad show. I think it's a great show. But I don't think music played as important of a role as the shows that we did. And um, we took a lot of pride in the cues that we picked. And maybe they don't even have music supervisors on that show. But again, even those editors were um, having to pick their own cues. So I think any reality editor has that skill or they won't be working very long. I mean, they, they, they have to know how to work with music, even if they don't, they, they don't have to know anything about contemporary music. They just have to know sort of what works. And, and that's kind of interesting because I know that uh, our, our members and, and Jonathan knows you well because for years, you know, it's like we'll see him for two or three months and then he disappears for 18 mm -hmm. months. He's back again for three months and he's gone for a while. Mm -hmm. But you've seen this evolution of our members and I, yeah. you've probably seen what I've seen, which is over the years they've gotten um, much better just because they've evolved. The ones that have hung in there with us for the longest period, they've gotten to the point where they're totally pro. And uh, I forgot where I was going with that, but um, oh, people tend to like kind of overthink the whole music process. Uh, and they're always looking for little edges. What can I do to make sure my thing gets picked? And, and there are nuances, which one of which I want to talk about in a minute, which is titles. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting that the editors aren't musical. Like they may not be able to name a genre or say it's four bars in. They just have a sense of I'm going to cut on that beat, which happens to be a kick drum. Right. Is that kind of the way it well, goes? Well, I don't think it's so much genre. I think it's more about naming a band. And I don't even think that that's, that is that important. Um, they'll probably know the genres, but they couldn't say, you know, give me five EDM bands like uh, Martin Garrix or mm -hmm. something. But I don't think it's that important. They should know, and I think we did try to do that instead of just labeling it electronic pop in their bin, we would say uplifting electronic mm. pop and try to describe uh what kind of scene that they could use it for Up, uplifting or fun or energetic or sad so instead of just saying you know pop or or a rock we would try to uh describe uh, the the adjective of the scene yeah uh, the application for that's it, right and that's brilliant i think because yeah. That way they don't have to listen to 125 EDM tracks yeah. to find the 16 that are going to work in a party that's, situation. That's right. Yeah, some would be club oriented. I mean, you don't have to know anything about music. Everyone's been in a club to know that, all right, it's going to be four on the floor as opposed to just some other sort of electronic EDM type cue. Probably a couple of woo, woo. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I did that really well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can tell I've been to a lot of clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so now they've... Uh, They've spent their five weeks of working on the various iterations of, of the uh, stages of editing and, and it's gotten down to the final edit and you've done the layback, which is taking the music, the final music and laying it up to the final cut of the show. 
while that's going on for those five weeks, I remember you talking about an overlap where you're you're not just starting one and ending one and starting the next. You've actually got episode number two, maybe even episode number three, kind of overlapping and daisy chaining as a season. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, typically it would be one episode would start per week, so there would be two editors uh, working on one show. And they would start on week one, and then episode two would start with another two editors. So they have, you know, by the time episode five comes around, you have five episodes going in various stages, 10 editors, and only one music supervisor. Wow. So and Say and, that again, 10 editors on one show? No, it would be uh, five, five episodes would be going right. at any one time, right, but given they, that they start. And two after, guys per show. Two guys per show, two editors per show. Yeah, but there's one music supervisor, so wow. you you really have to kind of keep track of it all. And for a show, for the MTV shows where I was picking every cue, it got it got pretty crazy. Where I would have, you know, three, four episodes going at any one time, and trying to help keep the editors happy and moving forward and keep the production going. Uh, That's it, an it got pretty insane. How many hours of a day did you typically yeah i mean work i, I worked show? i worked late on the there you know for the four and a half months that i would be working on the 12 episodes i'd be there eight nine o'clock not every night but many nights you know just however wow. long it took and what about organizationally i mean that i mean if you use spreadsheets to keep track of stuff how do you know what you have that's due to the editor you know what I yeah mean? what deliverables that you've got to the editors versus what they've got to deliver back to you so you can kind of put your stamp on it before you hand it off to the EP or whoever. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, we, I did a spreadsheet on Excel where it would, you know, there would be seven acts in a one-hour show, and the editors would split it up. One would have one through three, one would have four through seven, and on the spreadsheet, at least for the, the MTV shows, it would be, you know, each scene would have, or yeah, each scene would have its own cue. And it would all be on a spreadsheet. I would send the editor the spreadsheet with the cues, and they could just plug it in. And then uh, same goes for the rest of the episodes. And for the paid cues, the ones that we actually had to license. Versus the stuff that was part of the blanket. That's right. Um, that would be on a separate spreadsheet where I would keep track of all the costs because, of course, you know we have a budget. We have to adhere to the budget. The budget's not high. On these reality shows so in terms of organization yeah you definitely had to be organized on uh, all fronts in terms of uh, where you are in the production schedule but also on the budget to keep yourself to give yourself enough uh, uh, the budget towards the end of the show so you have enough to, to complete it and talk to me about cue sheets. I recently got a call from a couple of taxi members who got stuff. We were working um, directly with the editor of uh, one of the ghost hunting shows, and uh, it was based, the production company was based outside the U.S. somewhere. And the show was airing primarily uh, like in the Pan-Asia area, and now I think season number two or three it had migrated to Europe as well. And the members were concerned because they hadn't gotten a payment yet, but it had only been six months to a year. So I explained the international thing. that They're probably going to look at another six months before they at least, see the yeah. first pennies trickle in on right. that. Um, and then they, they said, you know, well, if the editor was acting as the music supervisor, which they were in this show because it was new and the budget was really skinny, mm -hmm. 
who on a bigger production, a more established production with a real team of people, um, do you as the supervisor fill out the spreadsheet? Does the editor fill out the spreadsheet or does an editorial assistant fill out, I mean the cue sheet? Yeah, the editors don't have anything to do with it. The only thing that the editorial team does, the assistant editors creates an EDL, which stands for edit decision list. And it basically, it's a bunch of time code and the names of the cues that have to be named properly. Uh, usually it's, I don't know, like 70 cues per show. It would be like a six page, you'd put it on a Word document. <clears throat> and yeah, typically it would be given to one of the assistants and it's typically done by the music department and they literally have to do math on the time code to figure out how long each cue played. And then so somebody went has from to... like uh, one minute, uh, 32 seconds and 16 frames. And yeah. then it ran to one minute, uh, 48 seconds and nine frames. They have to do the addition subtraction. That's correct. Wow. So it's mostly instrumental stuff, but somebody, either the music supervisor, like when I would go into layback sessions, I would take the EDL with me. And whenever I heard a, uh, a vocal being used, because that's a different, um, uh, pay rate or pay. Yeah, it's a different pay, different royalty stream. However, now ASCAP, they've made it the same. So instrumentals and vocal cues are now equ equally weighted. I bet all supervisors were like, shoot, that's a little less work for us, but I know right. the musicians weren't happy. No, but you still have to put it down as a background vocal uh -huh. or a background instrumental. You, you still have to put that down. So I would mark down which one is which. And of course, if it's a main title, that's weighted more, more heavily. And then, uh, yeah, usually the, the assistants would put it in uh, the Excel spread. MTV has their own proprietary uh, cue sheet system. A lot of the production companies do that. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of paperwork. And like you said about the international stuff, not only does it take you know, probably over a year, but it could take three months after a production wraps for the cue sheets to get done. Though the networks are usually on your butt pretty hard. Like, you know, we're not gonna pay you until you give us the binder, you know? So the yeah. binder includes everything. All the location they, releases. It's so a physical binder, it's a right? Physical, well, it is a physical binder, but they put it all on a, on a disc too. So it's, it's in digital form. And one of the things that you have to include are the cue sheets. And many times we would get an email saying, you know, where are the cue sheets? Want to get paid? Yeah, you're not going to get paid. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it's it's tough. There's a lot of outlets out there that just go churn out so much music, like Fox Sports. I know that's it's a constant battle for them because they just have, it's not just the national stuff, but all these regional outlets, Fox Sports Detroit, Fox Sports Chicago, all these people have to create cue sheets and it's just, it's a total, uh, you know, it's a it's a huge job, but you have to do it. You have to do it for the artists, the writers that put all those hours in to, to making these cues. And, and the, yeah, I don't think most people imagine the detail that goes into it and the follow through it, because it'd be very easy for somebody to just get a, t a word wrong, a title, yeah, a word in a title wrong, somebody doesn't get paid or they just leave one off a cue sheet, somebody doesn't get paid. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and, and there are ways, obviously composers can go whomever they're registered with, whether it's ASCAP or BMI.com, and you can pull up cue sheets. I mean, you go into your profile and it'll say cue sheets and you can see what was used. 
on your cues. It actually gives you the whole cue sheet. Boy, we must be brilliant. There's very little activity going on in the chat room today, which I was going to ask people to calm down so that we could have a, a fairly intense discussion. Um, okay, what are some of the things that supervisors and editors do to make things go quickly? Um, maybe I should ask this question a different way. Are there things that you appreciate from the composers that make your job easier and go more quickly? Um, like titles, let's talk about titles or anything like that that just makes your job easier. Well, I don't know if it makes it easier, but it makes it easier for the composer. I mean, it's all, it's, it's part of the whole <clears throat> marketing approach as a composer, where instead of just sending a cue like tension number one, that's, that's not going to entice the music supervisor to be able to... <laughs> and we see those here, right? I mean, yeah, you, you do. You've seen them as a taxi A&R person. Right. It's like... Um, Q number one, Tuesday mix. Right. And when I work on production music compilations, I take a lot of time to think up what the best title would be that would get the most attention uh, to the editors, but also help it describe the music. So I think it's just, it's an important marketing aspect. So <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it may, as a music supervisor, it, it it, it may intrigue me more to be able to look, hey, that's an interesting title, I'll, I'll check that out. I don't know if it makes it easier, but it's what, what makes it easier, I think, is just the arrangement. And as far as reality TV, um, instrumental music, less is more. Uh, there doesn't need to be a ton of instruments going on. It's gonna be playing behind dialogue. And um, I think the more simple arrangement, whatever the genre is, uh, the the easier it is to use. That was one of my questions, which I'm, I'm barely having to even look at my sheet because we're covering a lot of this stuff. But um, I, we put that in a lot of our listings. It's simple is better. And, and nobody's trying to, um, as a, a supervisor, you're not looking for to hand out a composer of the year award. You're looking to solve a problem or find a solution, which is convey the, the emotion without stepping on the dialogue? Is that a fair statement? For sure, absolutely. I mean, especially for the tension cues where um, there just doesn't need to be a lot of stuff in there. Maybe a, a pad, a pulsing bass line, some keyboards and, you know, have it rise up in tension and come back down and go up again at, at the end. It's a pretty simple formula. Is it a fair statement? Uh, I, I just had a meeting with some of the staff members earlier and was talking to them about um, we're putting out a listing for like Austin Powers, kind of, you know, uh, cheesy 60s spy music. Yeah. Uh, and I made the point to these guys I was in the meeting with that typically a, a cue versus an instrumental, a cue is typically like A, 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 A. It could be an A section all the way through, mm -hmm. or it could be like A, 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 B, A, 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 out. Uh, you know, just, yeah. I mean, simple. It, it could be, yeah. Um, buttoned endings, uh, stinger endings, same, essentially the same thing. Um, People often ask why. Why do so many of your listings ask for a you know a non-faded button stinger ending? Can you tell the viewers that may not know yet? Sure. What I mean, it's pretty simple. It's just to be able to end the scene with. I mean, otherwise, if it fades out, um, you are not the the editor won't be able to end a scene with. There has to be some sort of 
conclusive ending to the scene. And to be able to do that, there has to be some sort of uh, sting ending, just so we can get out of the scene and transition to the next cue. Um, I've noticed that a lot of stuff with acoustic instruments, uh, piano, acoustic piano cues, um, sometimes, uh, or even acoustic guitar cues, whatever the last chord is, when they go back to the root, you know, brown. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked by how many people don't let the ring go all the way out. Uh, I don't know if they're nervous or what when they pull the master down, but I hear those things being cut off all the time, and that's a, that's a killer, right? A deal it killer. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I hear that too. And um, if I'm working with a composer or a writer on a compilation, then that's one of the things I'll say. I said, just ring it out a little more. Let it have a little breathing space at the end, have it ring out. And, you know, if, if they're capable and skilled, they're, they're able to do it that easily. Um, talk to me about intros. Uh, I know this is going to be kind of decided by the show you're working on, but... Is there any preference, uh, longish intros, super short intros, Goldilocks just right mm -hmm. intros or no intro at all that, you know, is kind of a rule of thumb at all? I would say shorter, shorter the better, just because these scenes or cues don't last that long. I mean, at the most, they'll be used for 30 seconds, probably more like 15 or 20. And then they go to the next cue because they're changing emotion within the scene. And I think Dave, my editor friend, talked about that, that, you know, the, 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 the conversation is always changing. The emotional tone of the scene is always changing. So we're going to be using a lot of cues. So if you have a song with, or a cue with a long instrumental or a long introduction, then it's not going to work because we won't even be able to tell what the emotion of the cue is because right. it's 12 bars and, oh, I don't even know where this is gonna go until the to meat of the song comes in. So it's better to be shorter, you know, maybe four four bars and then go into the main theme. Uh, I, I always recommend people same thing because uh, whether you're choosing music to put on the drive or whether you're a library owner deciding on what you're gonna sign and put in your catalog, if you've got to sit there and wonder, is that the whole cue throughout the intro, you're moving on to the next one. So somebody could be really talented or have really appropriate music, but just because they made a bad decision on the length of the intro, that's right. they've killed the chances. Mm -hmm. um, putting on your taxi A&R hat for a minute, so can you think of some of the common things that if you could wave your magic wand and go, geez, taxi members, I wish you would do less of this or do more of that? Are there any things? I know the. I was trying to get these questions to you before the sure. show, at least that one, but off the top of your head. Yeah, I would say just try to really update the electronic instrumentation, all the synths, um, electronic percussion. That's just a killer. If it's, if it's not up to date, then it won't get used and it won't get forwarded, at least when I'm screening, because... It has to sound contemporary, and it's any genre. It could be an orchestrated trailer cue, or it could be a hip-hop cue. Um, it, it really, you know, it's easier said than done. That's not my area of expertise. My, my only thing is being able to listen to it and hear what's being used on TV or on the radio and try to match that because the producers are going to kick that back
And as a music supervisor, we won't have a job if we're just giving them anything with dated sounding synth samples. So that's like a huge issue with me, uh, just to have them updated up to and including, I think we talked about this um, on the panel where I had some of these pizzicato comedy cues, mm -hmm. a composer writing for me. And I just, I didn't like the bassoon sound. It just sounded like a synthesizer to me. And I know when I played it for the library that I was working with, I said, oh, you know, once it gets compressed and it's on a TV speaker, you won't know. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I'm going to do my best to push the composer. And if the rest of the cue is, is really well done, then it's probably going to pass muster. It's good enough. But um, that's something that I'd really listen closely for, or any kind of instrumentation that's supposed to sound like a real instrument, a violin, an oboe, whatever it is, or any kind of synth string or keyboard, it really has to sound authentic. And I know you guys take a, a, a lot of care in describing that in your in your listings to make it clear to everybody that that's, that's yeah. important. I feel like we're teaching the same lesson over and over in almost every listing we write and put out there. It's like, do we really need to say that the broadcast quality's gotta be up here? Mm -hmm. Do we really need to say short intro? Do we really need to say sting ending? Um, but you can't assume that somebody saw one taxi listing one time and remembered that sure. stuff. So we teach the lesson over and over. Uh, it's frustrating for us, really frustrating when stuff doesn't get forwarded by us and then we see people post on our forum or on a Facebook page or wherever that, oh yeah, taxi didn't forward this thing, but I got it into a library on my own. Well, we're in that same boat you are with the executive producer on the show. You want to do the best job you can so that they keep hiring you for more right. shows. Yeah. We want to send the best material we can to the library so that they think of Taxi as the premium source or resource, not the, you know, I guess I could call them and, and get something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember you and I and Kevin Houlihan went out to lunch one mm -hmm. day uh, and we sent you a batch of stuff. And your feedback was, eh, you know, it's like, okay. And I, I thought, I remember thinking, John, are you friggin' nuts? Mm -hmm. I almost said the F word. <laughs> um, because it sounded as good as probably 70 or 80% of the stuff that I heard on shows um, at the time. I'm one of those people that stands right in front mm -hmm. of my TV doing that. Uh, but it took a minute for your point to sink in, which was, I don't want it to be like 70 or 80% of the shows out there. I want to be in the top 20%. Uh, you know of the stuff that's out there sonically and, and you were right so while it frustrates me when we don't as a company forward somebody's stuff and they get it into a library it's a library not an a library right but i think that's good you know wh whomever that person is who took the time to give it to another library i'd say that's great i mean you know the, the, the best thing that you can do is to not have all your cues with one library. If, if one person says it's not good, maybe another person will like it. And it shows that they actually have taken the initiative to try to get it to other people. I mean, that's, that's what they should be doing and really creating music all the time. If somebody says it's not good enough, don't keep sending the same cues in right. over and over again. You have to keep writing. You know, that's, that's what the composers that do it full time are they don't wait around and 
they don't send you the same stuff. Um, they just keep writing. Um, let's talk about the, uh, let's not put all your eggs in the one basket uh, theory as far as libraries go. I'm actually currently, I was working out this morning at 6.30 a.m., an article for our newsletter about putting all your eggs in one basket. There's a syndrome. It's the they love me syndrome. Mm -hmm. I was rejected a lot in my first year at taxi and now I'm getting some forwards and finally I broke through with a library and this person asked me if I had more stuff and it's there's just this natural magnetism that you're drawn to this person who likes your work and I see these people that just keep feeding more and more of their stuff to one library well as are many things in our industry they're cyclical and you may work with the same three four five libraries for several seasons but then over time the what is used morphs and a library could fall out of favor or what they're good at falls out of fashion and you end up using other stuff and now this poor guy or or gal has tons of stuff in that one library and it's like what happened where did all my placements go yeah. so i'm glad that you brought that up because i think that's a, a much overlooked thing that uh, some of our older, smarter members will say, you know, I still keep my membership after 10 yeah. or 12 years because if I can add one or more new libraries a year, that's like buying insurance for the future. That's right. Yeah, I know one very successful composer based in L.A., and you probably know who I'm talking about, who, I, you know, he's still a taxi member because, like you said, he finds value in it, and if he can add a few more uh, opportunities out there if it's a commercial or, or a placement you know a thousand dollars is a thousand dollars you might as well keep it going and um, I think I think that's right on target yeah not a lot of people see that until it's too late I can think of another person uh, probably a composer you've bumped into through taxi over the years uh, an a-level composer uh, had gotten a lot of stuff in the, in the Oprah catalog when oh, the Oprah thing was yeah. very hot through us and uh, was probably an educated guest making 30 to 50k a year as, as part of his income stream mostly through the Oprah thing um, and didn't diversify mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that was the majority of his income stream and then all of a sudden Oprah said that's it I'm done with right. my regular daytime show and the poor guy dropped down to yeah. like nothing yeah um, okay I'm gonna take a I do want to talk at some point about um, episodic stuff, uh, dramas and films and, and documentaries, but I feel like I better pay attention to the questions that were emailed in. And I'm sorry to this gentleman who is the first question on the list. I'm not going to mention your name, but I just don't understand the question. I don't think it has any relevance to the show. I'm going to read it out loud, but we're not going to answer because I don't think anybody could. Smart as John is, this would be tough. Uh, as an I'm thinking this word is independent, I-N-D, lyric writer, two new singles. I'm reading this verbatim. As an end lyric writer, two new singles, uh, song title by me, can't get radio airplay because I'm property level, comma, produced by somebody else. How can I get a label? Can be heard on YouTube. That was the question as I got. So we're, we're skipping that one. Mm. Sorry. Just wanted you to know that we did get it. Um, okay, do you see, uh, this one's a little confusing as well, do you see any situation where music producers or supervisors will seek original music and they would be willing to invest in professional or alternative ready for film or TV arrangements? Um, I, I don't really understand that 
so did you get it uh i would it, it sounds to me like are you you know do you sort of like what you hear are you willing to invest and make it i don't know make it I, better it's like yeah, i don't know if they yes, mean invest money right. or you know like pick up the phone and call me and tell me how we could so yeah whether it's time or money i would say the answer would be no okay you know, it's, it's good it has to be sort of ready <laughs> yeah or close close to being ready um how did you become a music how do you become a music supervisor for tv shows was there a clear path or was it always something you wanted to do more specifically what advice would you give to someone whose goal it is to become a music supervisor for TV shows and films? Yeah, I think everybody's story is different, and I find it fascinating. And I, I do read interviews. I just read one with uh, 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 KCRW DJ, who's been there so many years and who's done a lot of network shows. And her path was different. Um, somebody like Gary Calamar, who you know worked at a record store, Licorice Pizza, and just absorbed all this musical knowledge and of course later became another kcrw jock and a lot of those folks just have access to so much music um that was sort of their path that they became known uh through being on the radio and producers would seek them out um so i think everybody's path is different mine was more uh in the record industry path where I did A&R for Capital and Universal Music. And um, then I saw the um, sync world sort of blowing up. And uh, m my brother was in a band and started doing music supervision. So I sort of apprenticed under him and another music supervisor that I worked with as an assistant and just realized that I was able to use some of the same skills I used in the uh, record industry being my ears and um, my um, contacts within the industry and my knowledge of publishing, clearing music, because it's not like you said, sitting around listening music, you have to know the nuts and bolts of publishing and a difference between a sync and a master and knowing where all the bones are buried and how to get stuff cleared in a, in a, in a quick way. So. Um, for somebody just starting out, I would say definitely try to uh, be an assistant somewhere. In, and even on the pitching side, you could learn a lot. You could work for a third-party licensor and meet all the music supervisors that way because you're, you're pitching to all these music supervisors. You have access to them. Or if you're working as an assistant at Warner Chapel and you're pitching all the music supervisors, you're, you get to learn about publishing, but you also get to... Um, uh, you get to meet all the music supervisors. You, you, you get to go to all the events and, and meet people that way. The glamorous events. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, we get uh, young people that come to work here uh, shortly after college. Usually they're fresh out of college or a year or two after college. And no matter how many times I tell them in the interview, look, uh, most of what we do here is administrative stuff mm -hmm. it's dealing with details and they're like it goes they don't hear it they think i'm going to work at a music company and i can see the frustration in a lot of their faces 30 days into the job it's like why are we not sitting around the boss's office with our feet up on the table mm -hmm. listening to music because mm -hmm. that would be cool yeah <laughs> but yeah. as you explained about working on the shows so much of it is filling out spreadsheets and dealing with details it's but yet you have to be encyclopedic about music. Yeah, you do. 
and and also know who to go to. I mean, I would have 60 to 70 people on an email database where if I needed something at the beginning of the season or if I needed some for a scene within a certain budget, you sent out the email and in your inbox in the next 24 hours, you have 40 cues to choose from. So somebody with little to no or less experience, uh, they could know everything about music and know all the genres, but they wouldn't know where to go to get it, nor would they have the budget to be able to get the bands that they might be interested in. But, you know, if, if, they're, if they're into new music, I, th I think that's a great skill to have, but you do have to have those other skills as well. We had a young man that worked here, and I had such high hopes for him. He, he was inherently very bright, um, but his, his scope of what he listened to was hip-hop from the last five years, seven years, something like that. And, and so it was very tough for him to work on, you know, if they said... If we were working on a project where we needed music like what Henry Mancini did for the Pink Panther, we'd be lucky if he knew about the Pink Panther maybe. Right. And, and that's tough. You've got to know pretty much everything from like World War II forward. At least have enough of a working knowledge that you can Google it. Sure. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But if, you, if you've never heard the name Henry Mancini, you wouldn't know to Google that. That's Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, next question question oh this is a great question uh and i want to apply it to other genres as well uh i'd like to start my own specialized library with celtic music i'd love to know if this is practical so a few questions i have would be number one is there a demand for this type of boutique library uh or would supervisors just go to the bigger libraries they had blanket deals with a fair question uh yeah it is a fair question um i don't think there's a lot of demand for it um you know i think you're right um there's these libraries that really specialize the bigger libraries in uh world music and uh you know you would probably go to that one first that's relatively cheap to get something authentic sounding however look every music supervisor would like to have that in their arsenal it would probably be in their iTunes folder for a couple of years before they would ever uh, have an opportunity opportunity to use it. So uh, you know, I wouldn't base all your you know quit quit your day job and think you're going to make all your <laughs> income back on a Celtic library. It's just there's not that much more demand for it. I would try to diversify and create different genres and have that you know be in the supervisor's pocket if they ever need it. There's one genre that I think might be the only one that's ever crossed my mind as being the uh, kind of single genre library, and that would be Middle Eastern music. And that's because terrorism, sadly, has become so much more prevalent over the last 15 years. And I don't have a feeling it's going away anytime soon. So there are more and more movies and TV shows. Uh, Homeland is a great example yeah. of a show, you know, where uh, the, the lead character walks out into the street, puts her headscarf on, and is walking down the street kind of looking over yeah. his shoulder. And you could hear anything Middle Eastern from a single flute to something rhythmic, really, really stripped down. Or it could be that the show's characters have gone to um, a wedding. Yes, right. Or some big affair at the consulate, you know, and, and there's like really high-end Middle Eastern music. So that, if I've often had this question. Celtic wouldn't be where I would go. Yeah. Middle Eastern might yeah. be, but yeah. you're right. Diversifying, you know, just to have 
a really world-class world music yeah, library sure. now that you know where it doesn't sound like a library yes absolutely which, which is a thing right um sometimes i hear music when i listen to reality shows and i go gosh it just all sounds like library music and mm -hmm. then sometimes you hear a piece and you go that sounds so authentic Mm, yeah. yeah, it sounds like the composer wasn't a library composer, but they got that off a record. Sure, right. So, it's... is that a thing for for you guys? Meaning, you guys as supervisors, that um, given the chance, would you go for the ease of finding it in a library that can get it to you quickly, or would you spend twenty percent more time going for something really authentic? I think it depends on the show. I think for MTV, it sort of demands that that you're using more artists real artists as opposed to library cues so i think you would take a little more time and, and care and, and effort to be able to find those independent artists that you can afford in your minuscule budget to make it sound more authentic yeah they, they don't they don't want a lot of library music unless they own it of course then they want you to use a lot of it oh that was the question i thought of remember earlier go. i said there was a question that i wanted to ask you we're starting to see it's something i predicted years ago and we're now mm -hmm. seeing it come to um become reality which is production companies that do many shows maybe four to twenty shows uh, maybe even more um are building their own libraries because they can one of the things i'm hearing from these companies is we don't really want to be in the library library business but we want to own the music uh library business would be somebody's picking up the phone and pitching it but they're, they're already using it so they don't need the you know the sales side of the library but they do have the right. admin side of it mm -hmm. uh is that the way of the future or using more and more entities building their own in-house libraries yeah, I I do see a lot of that, and they're they're bigger companies that are doing that, and uh, sure, I don't see it going in the other direction. Um, it's unfortunate, I think, for the bigger libraries that um, are sort of being undercut by the production companies that they have serviced for many years, but you know, it's a, it's a competitive thing. I don't think it's always gonna be 100% in-house stuff because I don't think they have the manpower to uh, have somebody create all that stuff. There has to be somebody there that they have to pay a certain amount to be able to make all that money back. There's not that much income stream coming to justify paying somebody whatever, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year to help maintain and mm -hmm. hire composers. That's what the professionals do. That's what the libraries do. That's what so, yeah. the conversations I've had with some of them, not all, but some of them have kind of indicated we want to have this stuff magically appear, but we don't want to pay for it. Right. <laughs> or we don't want to pay somebody to help create it. Yeah, that's cultivate a, it. Yeah. That's a, they don't want a staff. Yeah, right. They just want it to magically appear with them owning 100% of the publishing. Right. I don't know how they do it, but <laughs> somebody has to do it. Um, I understand that uh, music supervisors go through songs very rapidly. Is it generally better to start a full arrangement followed by a breakdown than to start a cue sparsely and have it build up? assume no intro in both cases so do you get right to the you know a fully developed um 
red meat section, if you will, or do you start sparsely and build it up? Yeah, the, I would say the latter. Start sparsely, like we said before, uh, like a four-bar intro, and then he's build. saying assume no intro. He's saying start right with the the A section with the. I mean, intro. I think first possibly for some of the EDM cues where you don't mind having a sort of blast right in with a upbeat, <clears throat> catchy electronic synth riff that could be the chorus. I don't have a problem with that. You know, you could start out a scene like a transition scene. If it's a transition scene, you're going to take that part of the chorus anyway, you're within the cue, whether mm -hmm. there's an intro or not. So to start out a cue with the chorus on an EDM cue, I think that's fine. But uh, it depends on the genre. If it's a tension cue, then it does, I think, have to start out a little more low key and let it build up. Um, I want to talk about a t another trend that I'm seeing because we—I don't think we've ever had this discussion. But shows that I see on Fusion, a lot of shows I see on Vice and Vice Lend the Network, um, they're kind of changing the game a little bit with with the tone uh, of the music that they use. Um, sometimes I'm amazed in a good way, and I go, "Wow, I never would have thought to mm. use that kind of cue." And the cues are like. No normal library would sign these cues. It's yeah. kind of the feeling yeah. that I get. Yet they're making it onto these really kind of cutting edge, gritty, greasy, make you uncomfortable documentaries that I might see in Fusion or Vice. Uh, it, I've just recently, in the last few months, started to see that sound mm -hmm. leaking its way into other TV formats. Is that something that we can expect to see more of in the future? I think so. I think you did pick up on that pretty early. And I started noticing it too. And um, one of my contacts said, yeah, you know, this entity is, is looking for these sort of drone type cues. And yeah, I think those uh, Vice documentary, documentaries or even some of the, the stuff on uh, PBS, like Frontline, mm -hmm. for example, with all those serious subject matters, especially a lot of the terrorism type shows where it's just really dark subject matter that, you know, like almost like I was saying before, it doesn't have to be played dry, but almost having these drone cues with no rises or, or drops, that it is almost like playing it dry. Like we're not telling you we're what not, to think yeah, or how not, to feel. Exactly. We're going to let the dialogue take it, but we do still want something underneath so it's not totally dry. So I think we probably will see more of that. I just saw a great example of that, and this is a little sensitive, so if you have young kids in the room, put your hands over their ears. I'm not going to get foul about this, but I, I saw a thing last night uh, about a young um, Arabic woman that had been kidnapped by Boko Haram, I think, and she described the multiple abuses that she went through, or no, it was ISIS actually had captured her, and she... Uh, Numerous times a day, things were done to her that no woman, no person should ever have to endure. And my wife and I were just sitting there watching it, just go, oh my God, you literally felt like you were going to throw up from disgust that one person could do this to another. And of course, being the music guy, when the whole thing was over, my wife and I had a little moment where we talked about it. The next thought I had was, I don't remember the music yeah. that I heard there. And I went back and watched it. And that's what it was. It was just a drone. Yeah. It was literally a note that was just held it was almost like room noise that an editor would put in a scene you it would have been weird to have nothing in there musically but all it was was yeah 
it was a grumble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all you could do with a subject that was that disgusting. You couldn't put strings in there. You couldn't put a song in there, but it had to have something. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll see more of that. Absolutely. Um, any tips on how to pitch music directly to supervisors? <laughs> we knew we were going to get that one. Yeah, I mean, I was almost going to say that before um, about me answering emails or any supervisor that typically what I tell people is that if you if you have a story, I think a story is important and a story would be something like I've had four placements on this MTV show, I've had three placements with this, and but it has to be something tangible, something real, something to show that you've had experience and uh, you know just something to, whether you've shared the stage with some bigger acts something to get that person to open the email does that matter I, I see that pretty frequently what, did I, I share the stage yeah because no, a lot of times I, that... I think people are BSing it's like okay so you sang background vocals for John Mellencamp one time when he was playing a show I almost, expect, I almost expect to see that and I think it somewhat is a little overdone yeah. and, and overused <laughs> it doesn't mean much but whatever the story is try to create a story rather than just sending a cue and not having a, any sort of sound cloud or anything like that you have to make it easier easy for somebody to be able to click right in that email so SoundCloud is great that's for me that's the easiest you know Dropbox is you have to be logged in and all that SoundCloud you don't have to be logged in right. maybe in box or Dropbox you can listen to it without being logged in but I like I like SoundCloud I think it's great and if you have your stuff up it just means you're you're on your game you're professional and within four seconds you know you'd be able to tell whether it's worthy of continuing to listen um, do you know uh, Frank Palazzolo yeah, in fact, I loved his panel on the. Oh, so you were uh, there the, the, the world rally. Yeah, you can tell he's a very real guy, very sure. astute, yeah. very hardworking, very like intensely mm -hmm. focused. And when he told me that he listened to or reviewed a thousand pieces of music in an hour, in a flash, I thought that's got to be BS. No, it's Frank. It's yeah, true, right. and, and that just gives you some clue as to the intensity of the job of a music supervisor. A thousand pieces of music just going. No, no, no. And, and knowing that quickly if it goes into the maybe pile or not. Yeah. Astonishing. That's right. It is kind of mind-numbing, but you have to remind yourself, hey, I'm, I could be digging ditches. I mean, this is, you know, you have to just keep reminding yourself that and be grateful, you know, if you have the work. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, you're right. A thousand cues, that's not fun. I no. mean, that's not listening to music for enjoyment. It's, it's just, you know, what's, what's, what's going to work? Wow, basically. It is definitely not mm -hmm. fun. Um, based on what you see or hear submitted to you for consideration, what's the number one mistake composers make? What's your biggest turnoff? Uh, again, I would say, you know, just not sounding contemporary and, and not understanding the genre that you're trying to uh, go into, whether it's hip-hop or electronic stuff. It's really the great composers that I work with can, I can send them an example on YouTube, like we here do a taxi, 
and without getting too close to get <laughs> close enough for copyright infringement, uh, they can they can get very close to that genre and the 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 tone of what we're going for, the arrangement, uh, just the whole package. So I think it's just being able to study what's out there and going into these forums and finding out, all right, what what are the samples you're using? Like we're doing, like they're all doing here. They're all using you know, chat rooms to find out what kind of software they're using. Yeah. But to really be up to date on um, what the composer's use, using because it's always changing. Uh, reverb, uh, I, I've noticed that much cooler uses of reverb in the last two to three years. Uh, we went through a phase where everything had to be kind of dry and right there. And then, uh, well, it, it may have started back with like Bon Iver and some of the acts like that, but the, uh, you know, we're in a forest or a cave and the music is over there somewhere. But the more I hear of that, the more I've come to appreciate it. I used to think of it as some sort of sonic cop-out, like I'm covering, because, you know, being a retired engineer, as it mm. were, that it was just covering stuff up. But it's definitely part of the, the palette and the landscape, and I've definitely grown to like it a lot more and even respect it, I will add. Sure. Um, if you're signed up, if you're signed up under BMI as a writer and get music placed through a supervisor, do you have to sign up as a publisher in order to claim the publisher's share? Or can you just claim the publisher's share and the writer's share as the writer? Yes, you don't have to have your own publishing entity. BMI or ASCAP will pay out the publisher's share to you, even if you don't have a publishing entity. You have to notify them that you don't have a publisher, or is there some way to make sure that they understand, because I have heard horror stories from people that didn't have a publisher on something they placed directly with the soup, and they didn't get half the money because BMI or ASCAP didn't understand that. Do they now routinely just assume that if there's no publisher listed, send you the whole amount? No, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that exactly, because I would recommend always forming a publishing company. It's, it's pretty easy to do. Um, what we would do is... Uh, if there's no publisher involved, but we know the writer has the publishing, it would be like uh, the writer name on behalf of or copyright control. So it's it's um, it's on the cue sheet known that the writer is controlling their own publishing. Uh, let's talk. This leads us to metadata. Um, I assume that all the stuff that you work with from libraries that you put on your drives and hand off to the editors all has nicely done metadata because that's part of the value that libraries bring to you and, and to the writers that are signed to them. Uh, if you get something directly, uh, a song directly from an indie band that you like a lot and their metadata is crap, um, does it make you wince and go, <sighs> too much work to sort this out and move on to something else or will you spend the half an hour chasing down the person from the band saying were there any other writers are there splits okay what are their names what percent do they have you know right I think a lot of the metadata won't typically won't have the writers names on it or the publishing information I think they just have to be on their game where if it does get licensed um, even with the smaller libraries we would get updated spreadsheets like every three months like all right here's here's all our cues it would be on an excel spreadsheet 
or whether it's even just one artist, but just to, just to have it organized so we could put it in our in our folders that, all right, we just do a search on an Excel spread. The name of the queue is I, I Love You from this library, and it comes up. So metadata, you don't have to have everything there. It's really not going to be a, a make or break situation. If they're organized or if the supervisor is organized, you're going to ask for that information up front anyways. Like, are right. you going to chase down 70 queues worth of stuff, though? Uh, or you, what do you mean when you say you're going to ask for it up front? In other words, like, all right, we got this license, send me your spreadsheet. So the spreadsheet has all the queue titles, all the writer names, and all the publishing information. For I, every, I, yeah, for that particular library. So, oh, okay. so, so when you see it come up in an EDL, like so-and-so music, here's the queue title, you pull up that spreadsheet when you're getting ready to do the queue sheet, you, uh, you do a search in Excel on that queue title, and it comes up with the writer information. Um, because typically you, on a on a EDL, it wouldn't have the metadata on the on the EDL right, anyway. It's not going to fly no, over you there have from to, the. You have to look it up, or it's if they're worth their salt. If it's not on the spreadsheet, then the secondary source would just be to go to ASCAP.com, and if they did their work correctly, then it should be registered. Mm -hmm. But and, that creates one more step for you. Well, it does, and and if it's a title that you know there's. 500 titles with the same queue title, then it's hard. You don't know which, which one it is. So it's always best to have that documentation given to the supervisor in a cohesive um, spreadsheet so they can hold on to it. By the way, I see uh, Craig Robart in there. I, I want you to know that I listened to a bunch of your stuff yesterday, Craig. I think I saw you answer something on the form. I spent an inordinate amount of time on the taxi form, which I don't often do, but I did this past weekend. And uh, I went and listened to your stuff and I thought, this guy knows what he's doing. So congratulations, really, really, really good work. Um, and you guys get ready with uh, some questions because I wanna ask Jonathan a couple more things and I wanna take some questions from the chat room before uh, we end the show. So now let's go back to um, let's say you're working on a drama, uh, how many pieces of music might make it into an hour-long drama? Uh, well, I don't think any of the shows I worked on were dramas, really. I mean, they okay. all had some sort of an entertainment aspect, and I think all the reality shows, I don't know, they're just reality. So I think... <laughs> you kind of, yeah. Right, I mean, there's some drama, there's some fun, um, it's not like a one-hour, um, you know, drama on, on network, scripted drama, but in any That's case... That's what I meant, it was like a scripted thing. Is, is they use a lot less music, or... Um... I would say it, it depends on the show. For the MTV, for this, for the challenge, it was like 60 to 70, but it was wall-to-wall. -wall. That's just the way that it was, but if it's on another show, maybe 40. And how about in um, 42 minutes a feature film um, has a completely and utterly different timeline and, and process uh, is there a way to summarize what that would be um, from a supervisor's perspective versus working on a reality show yeah well I mean most of most of the feature films have a composer so they're doing the, the bulk of the work and depending on the genre of the film, you know, you might have 10, 
10 uh, cues that are lyric cues that play in montages. Um, I would say that's probably around average and the rest would just be score. Uh, let's talk about uh, background source stuff. The, the classic jukebox in, in a roadhouse bar uh, with a bunch of motorcycles parked out front. Um, I personally have observed, and I could be right or wrong about this, but I think universal lyrics have become somewhat less important in the last year or two. It used to be that we'd ask libraries or supervisors that ran listings to taxi, uh, do you need universal lyrics? And, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And now when we ask the question, especially from supervisors, they go, yeah, not so much. Uh, it's going to be background source come out of a jukebox 50, 60 feet away. <laughs> ah, I don't care. Um, any, any, have you noticed any of that? Uh, I think that's true. Um, if it's background, it's going to be pushed so far in the background, then you won't notice it anyways. So I don't think you'd have to tell composers or artists, just give me something universal. Um, if it's going to be a featured use, then the lyrics obviously have to pertain to the scene and I wouldn't want it to be so generic and universal where it just wouldn't apply to any scene. Right. I mean, I think you just have to leave it up to the artist to create something great and just hope it gets used. I wouldn't want them to compose stuff just to try to get sinks out of it. Um, authenticity uh, is a word that gets used a lot in our industry and uh, it's supervisors will say send us stuff that or send me stuff that doesn't sound like a one-man band in a studio mm -hmm. uh, and i know some of our members that are really good one-man bands they sound pretty darn authentic like a, a band playing you know a live set or a live song um how much uh, not in the context of, of reality so much but uh how much does authenticity count can you is it visceral? Can you feel it? Like, you know, this was created by a guy who's playing all the instruments versus this was played by a band. Does that have an effect on supervisors? I would say so. I mean, somebody would play something for me and you would just know immediately whether it's going to work and whether it's from a composer or uh, an, an artist or a band, I think you can tell. Yeah, I think you can tell whether it's recorded well, uh, whether they took care of uh, with the production and the arrangement and the same is true for composers that it, it really that that authenticity is a major factor in it in it being used it has to sound real and it's have, have, the, have some emotion to it the blues rock category immediately comes to mind because so many shows requested that especially two or three years ago and still it's pretty popular today and I've heard some stuff done by a one-man band. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to label people like that, but they've gotten really, really good at it, where you yeah. almost can't tell anymore. For so sure. I'm happy about that. Um, Ken DePotter asks, how often do you use cues which are not a single mood, but rather transition from one mood to another to help support the action in a scene? Um I would say that's more rare than just having one singular emotion. There would be one editor that we would work with, like, again, one of the ones that we would need to handhold a little bit more. And he was notorious for saying, look, I need a 
something with a little comedy in it and serious and then you know tense and then uplifting at the end it's like what right how am i i don't know any cues like that but it's your job to say okay i'll find something uh but that's the rarity i think like i said the length of these cues in reality tv is so short then they can use something with one emotion for 15 seconds and then the tone of the scene changes they just sting out and go to another cue so i would say less important uh though if though if you can incorporate that in a coherent way that doesn't sound you know jagged or odd then go for it um oh where did i see uh, oh uh some Jim Carvalho wants me to ask you if you wrote any books. I think I read a book years ago. They still have it. Your brother? No. No? Okay. Um, no. <laughs> all right. A any other questions before we wrap this up? I know as soon as I say, all right, it's time mm -hmm. to go, I'll see like six questions fly by. Um, mostly we're getting agreement on stuff we've already said. Come on. I know there's a little delay, so it's always uncomfortable mm -hmm. sitting here waiting. Let's see if I've got anything left to fill the space. Um, no, I think I've covered every one of my questions. All right. Uh, well, with that, because I'm not seeing anything else come through, and we're just about at the end of our time anyway. So I want to thank you for doing this. You're I know welcome. that it, it's no a, a daring feat. And I hope you don't get home and get a bunch of emails from people because it's okay. they think I'm the special one that he's, you know, it's okay if I do it kind of stuff. So, no worries. Um, and I think, yeah, I got all these guys done. Thank you guys for watching. Welcome to 2017. Next week's show is going to be one of those uh, taxi TVs where we listen, we read a listing, and we play the forwards and returns. So uh, <laughs> how do you become a go-to guy? See, I knew those questions start coming mm -hmm. in now. Uh, you're welcome, guys. Thank you all for watching. We will see you next week for forwards and returns. And with that... Adios from Taxi TV. Yeah. I love that audience.